0: Today's panel discussion is co-sponsored by the Chinese Historical Society of New England and is presented in commemoration of the 135th anniversary of the Chinese Exclusion Act. It's the second in a three-part series that we're doing here at the Athenaeum on the history of United States immigration uh, from the late 19th century through today. And if you missed the first program in that series, you can catch it online on our website. That was a lecture with Neil Swidey from the Boston Globe. Um, And I invite you to join us again on December 12th. We'll be doing a presentation by the Poets Theater based on materials from our own collections. I also invite you to stop by the sitting room, which is located... Immediately next to the membership office, we have a small display of immigration-related materials from our collections, both circulating and special, for you to view. I'd like to extend a very special thank you to Justina Chu for conceiving this program and bringing the Athenaeum and the Chinese Historical Society together for the collaboration. And also thanks to Susan Chinson and Jess Cammie for everything they've done to bring the program together as well. Our speakers today are Tani Lee, Lee Song Liu, and Shauna Low. Tunny Lee is Professor Emeritus of Architecture and City Planning at MIT and the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Mr. Lee grew up in Boston's Chinatown and holds a Bachelor's of Architecture degree from the University of Michigan. He has worked for Buckminster Fuller, I.M. Pei, and Ulrich Franzen, among others. He was head of MIT's Department of Urban Studies and Planning, and the founder of the Department of Architecture at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. His primary areas of research are urban residential density, Boston's Chinatown, and the planning history of Boston. Li Song Liu is an associate professor of history at the Massachusetts College of Art and Design. He holds a doctorate and a master's degree from the University of Minnesota and a bachelor's degree from Wuhan University. His teaching and research interests focus on Chinese emigration and nation building, post-1965 Asian-American communities, U.S.-China relations, and comparative global migrations. He's published in the Journal of Asian-American Studies and Journal of Chinese Overseas. His first book, Chinese Student Migration and Selective Citizenship, Mobility, Community, and Identity Between China and the United States, was published by Routledge in 2015. Shauna Lowe is Assistant Director of the Institute for Asian American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, where she administers the institute and assists on programs and research projects related to Asian American communities in Massachusetts. Her scholarly projects, um, articles, I'm sorry, have appeared in New England Quarterly, Asian American Law Journal, Chinese America, History and Perspectives, and New England Journal of Public Policy. She received her master's and bachelor's degrees in American Studies from the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Ms. Lowe has a strong interest in Chinese American history and immigration during the exclusion era, particularly here in the Boston area. Following brief presentations by each of our panelists, Susan Chinsen, the Managing Director of the Chinese Historical Society of New England, will moderate a question and answer period with the speakers. Please join me in welcoming all of our presenters to the Boston Athenaeum.
1: It's wonderful to be here in this really beautiful room, in this beautiful building, and to participate in the continuing evolution of this great Boston institution into something more representative of our population. And part of it is, of course, us and the, um, as William Faulkner once said, this is the theme, this is the second in the series that." the acronym is putting on called the Golden Door of Border Wars. As we all know, it's in the news every day about immigration. And as William Faulkner once wrote, the past is not dead. It's not even past. So I think we tell you this story as a way of trying to understand how immigration worked before and how it works over time. Um, the, the Americans have, we Americans have the ideal of equality for all, open all people. The Statue of Liberty beckons us, but unfortunately there were always exceptions. The Chinese Exclusion Act was the first legislation that singled out a specific racial group to be excluded. But it was not the first attempt in America to limit citizenship. The Constitution specifies that slaves are three-fifths of a person, and that people who be counted were free white persons, including bond servants, but not American Indians, and by implication, certainly not the Chinese. The 1790 Naturalization Act specified that only immigrants who could gain citizenship were free white persons of good moral character and excluding the same people, American Indians, indentured servants, slaves. Now today, the Chinese population in Massachusetts Has grown from one in 1860 to 124,000 in Boston. No, 124,000. In Boston to 23,000. These are, um, this is the Chinatown, this is Boston, and this is Massachusetts. Today, Chinese work in restaurants and high tech firms teaching schools and universities, and just about all the kinds of jobs that Bostonians do. Until 1940, most were from four counties in Guangdong Province. Now there are Chinese from all parts of China and the Chinese diaspora. There are two major axes of Chinese settlement Chinatown remains the center of working class Chinese, mostly Cantonese speaking. The axis, sorry, I keep hitting the wrong button. All right. The two axes in major connected by Chancellor Quincy, Malden, and Chinatown. The red and orange lines connect those areas. Most professional Chinese and middle class Chinese live in the western suburbs through Brookline, Newton, Waltham, Lexington, and now Acton. As you can see, the major populations are in Boston, Quincy and Malden, with much more scattered populations in Cambridge, etc. <sighs> Again, this represents the connections of Malden, Brighton, Chinatown now is the smallest of those three communities. How did this happen? What were the, the um, relationships of Boston and China? Boston has a longer relationship with China than most American cities. It started with the China trade. Um, and one part of it, the opium trade. Uh, Boston merchants had fast clippers, that could deliver goods and make profit from trading furs, timber, ice, in exchange for silk, tea, and porcelain. That's been highly romanticized as that trade. But the most profitable trade was in opium. The fortunes were made by selling opium, reaping immense profits, The Boston merchants had one niche of that, that was the the Brits were the major drug dealers in China, but the Americans had a very substantial part. They imported uh, opium from Turkey via Boston to Canton, and the fast clippers were essential in that purpose. So Thomas Perkins um, of the Perkins Institute for the Blind and his many relatives gained immense wealth from the opium trade. At one point, Perkins wrote that he was sending 150,000 pounds of opium to Canton, to his son-in-law, Who was based there The fortunes that were made Really created The industrial revolution in New England (coughs) Thomas Perkins invested in (coughs) Mills in Newton Iron manufacturing in Vermont And some Some historians note that the country's first railroad, anyway, it came from the Quincy Quarry. Uh, Another Perkins' nephew um, used his opium uh, profits, mines and railroads that would eventually cross the country. Perkins and his um, compatriots benefit the city of Boston immensely. Um, The Perkins Institute for for the Blind, Massachusetts General Hospital, McLean Hospital, and the Boston Athenaeum. The names of other opium barons are engraved on university buildings, high schools, and public libraries. The China trade also left other legacies in Boston. Some of them was the tea, obviously the the main ingredient from China, and some of the traders bought servants back from China. They also bought Chinese and Chinese goods back as exotics. Uh, This little graph which is in the Athenaeum collection, um, shows the Chinese Museum, the Great Chinese Museum. It was on Washington Street, and it had exhibits that showed the exotic nature of the Chinese. There were curious kinds of um, <clears throat> drawings that are based on writings and the imagination of the artists. Uh, the top one in the round is some strange stock uh, punishment in a cylinder which apparently has never been seen before or after. <laughs> the museum was opened from 1845 to 1847 and um, And it left for Philadelphia at some point, but there's also at some point P.T. Barnum uh, probably uh, acquired some of the assets, and Ms. Puan Wong-Ki, who's advertised at Amory Hall, Washington Street, Washington West Streets. And the advertisement was for this wonderful lady, with her, the most notable part of this lady was that her feet were two inches long, that she had bound feet. At the same time, a little later, North Adams, Sampson Shoe Factory in North Adams, um, the workers went on strike and the owner, Mr. Sampson sent his manager to San Francisco and came back with 75 Chinese workers. The Crispins, that was the union for the um, French Canadian shoemakers, came to the railroad station to meet them, armed with sticks and stones. But the sight of the Chinese was so uh, so awesome that they threw one rock and that was the end of it, they just stood in saw as the men, all dressed in hats, black clothing, and cloth shoes, marched from the station to the factory. The workers ranged from age 14 to 22, so the youngest you can see probably in the first row. Again, this photograph is also an Athenium collection. The Chinese proved not only to be quick learners, but they became more productive and they were cheaper. This really was one of the main reasons the labor unions became alarmed that at the the competition of Chinese labor. Now, most of these workers went back to to, um, San Francisco. Some of them very likely wound up in Boston, uh, but most of them had round-trip tickets and went back. And that was the, so the 1870 census in North Adams shows 75 Chinese. The 1880 census shows four. 1890 census shows zero. Now the Shoemakers were, their union was the order of St. Crispin. St. Crispin you may know is the patron saint of Shoemakers and also Henry V's speech in Shakespeare on this St. Crispin day but Anyway, that was the, the, it. Was part of the labor movement, and the um, Chinese shown here um, assassinating Saint Crispin were more like the fourteen-year-old boys. Now, the thing that changed drastically was that the U.S. was opening to the West and um, it was in a railroad intercontinental railroad was proposed and built at such a priority that was built even during the Civil War the it was cheaper and easier to import workers from China across the Pacific than to move workers around South America so the Chinese workers were imported to work on the um Uh, Central Pacific Railroad first and other railroads later. Um, That's my great-grandfather who worked on that railroad. Um, And that left a legacy of Chinese workers in the West. When the Chinese stopped working on the railroads, they settled down mostly where they were, had, had built on. So some went up in the Rockies, some went into the small towns in um, <clears throat> in California, and the, they went into all the kinds of businesses and work that anybody else would do. They went into uh, farming, they went into fisheries, they went into canneries, um, and cigar making, among others, and At the same time, the railroad that they helped built was bringing European Americans across the Rockies into the West Coast, and the Chinese posed a very, very dangerous competition for them. The labor movement, um, headed by the great Samuel Gompers, the American... Uh, AFL, American Federation of Labor, put out a pamphlet that said, can meat versus rice? Can American workers compete against Chinese who would eat rice rather than meat? And the other cartoon on the left shows that American Goliath being strapped down by Chinese little pushians. So as was noted in North Adams, the Chinese would pose a very, very big competition. This was aggravated by the panic of 1872 and subsequent panics after that, regularly every 10 years or so in the American system. And they hit workers the hardest and they were competing against the Chinese. So at the end of the Civil War, um, things change. Immigration up to that point had been open and welcome because it built the country, it settled the land, and mostly were from Northern Europe and later from Southern Europe. And But... The Chinese on the West Coast posed a completely different problem, and they were not welcome at all. Um, and Senator Sumner of Massachusetts, who was a prominent anti-slavery senator, when the when the Constitution and laws had to be amended after. The free of the slaves. The word white had to be taken out of many documents. And Sumner proposed a amendment that essentially just took the words white out of all the laws and the Constitution. Unfortunately, the senators from the West thought this would and would have um, enabled the Chinese to vote. Now they were now maybe 100,000 Chinese in the United States, mostly in the West, and that was a threat that was um, uh, too imminent. So the Chinese Exclusion Act came about. The Chinese Exclusion Act bans all Chinese from entering the United States except for diplomats, merchants, and students. No Chinese could be naturalized. The intention of this law was clear. It was after the Chinese who were here died out, there would be no Chinese in the United States. As part of, happened after the passage of the Exclusion Act and even before, there were essentially what's call ethnic cleansing today. California had over 200 um, towns with Chinese settlements, and they were driven out of all but a handful, San Francisco, Sacramento, and, uh, and a handful of the big cities. So my great-grandfather had worked on a farm in Colusa, California, and then he was driven out to San Francisco and eventually to Boston. He also was, um, and then the summer was even bloodier because the the Rock Springs, Wyoming massacre. Twenty eight killed, fifteen injured, seventy five houses burned, and this was not uncommon. In 1885, November, a mob including. Many of Tacoma's leading citizens marched on the Chinese community and forced everyone out of their houses and out of town. The mayor, Mayor Weisberg, Weisbach, uh, called the Chinese a curse and a filthy horde. The Chinese left, and there uh, was not a single Chinese in Tacoma until recently. My great-grandfather was in that town in that day, and he went on to come to Boston. So after the the passage of the Exclusion Act, many people came to Boston out of the West. And how did did Boston react? What was the Boston um, uh, adaptation to it? The main factor of coming to Boston, New England and the East, was the growth of industries. New England was undergoing its massive industrialization. The Chinese were excluded from practically all work. No employer would hire them. They could not do factory work. Um, And they started opening laundries in industrial towns. And Boston's Chinatown became the socioeconomic center. The Chinese worked in isolation out in towns around Boston. My grandfather and my great grandfather worked in laundries in Bridgewater. There were people, many people here I see, who grew up in laundries in Charlestown, East Boston, Malden other places. And the work was hard, the work was long. Um, This was written by someone in 1903, uh, a Boston scholar writing about the South End. The Chinese managed to build a community to serve those laundrymen. There were In 1900, there were 500 laundries in the city of Boston, I think two of them in Chinatown. So Sunday, Chinatown became the place where you could come in to meet friends, buy food, get your hair cut, buy vegetables. And in Somerville, um, there was a farm that was run by Chinese, and they You can tell by this that they were drying sausages, meats, and others for sale, and growing Chinese vegetables. That didn't last very long. The reaction of most was that the Chinese were, I think, like Weissbachs. They were filthy, and they were um, danger. The Americans feared that the opium and the gambling would contaminate the Americans and that the young would be corrupted. So the second one there asked Mayor to limit Chinese. Council urged to bar young girls from their restaurants. The preservation of white womanhood was very important in the minds of, um, and still is, by the way, in the minds of people anti-immigrants. Many attempts were made to get rid of Chinatown altogether. Um, and we know more recently highways were used for that, slum clearance. But even in 1893, um, widening the street and uh, was up without any apologies, squalid, basic room wanted for rapid transit. And so the street was widened and attempts were made to get rid of the Chinese altogether because most of the houses that were taken were occupied by the Chinese. But actually the Chinese persisted anyway, and they rebuilt and they uh, stayed. So by 1903, the Exclusion Act had been renewed, and the Gary Act, which strengthened the Exclusion Act, was um, uh, pass and there were at new efforts to get rid of the Chinese altogether. So in 1903, October 11th, on a beautiful evening, 50 policemen, Boston police and immigration officials surrounded Chinatown and began demanding to see IDs, because the Geary Act required that all Chinese would carry IDs. And so over 300 were arrested. Eventually about 50 were deported. The newspapers had a grand time with the cartoonists showing uh, their idea of how to treat the Chinese and the imposing policemen. A different aspect of the chi- Boston reaction was the visit of Mrs. Gardner, Isabella Stewart Gardner, to Chinatown, accompanied by her Japanese curator. And um, March 12, 1908, Mrs. Gardner, Okakura Kazuko, They had a menu including duck, mixed poultry, nuts, and fish and ices. Mrs. Gardner departed in a carriage drawn by a pair of prancing bays, the coachman and footman clad in bearskin furs. And other people also like to come slumming in Chinatown. Now, despite all of this, a community actually emerges. We call it the Bachelor Society because women were mostly excluded, and it was very difficult to have a family, to have family, but despite all of that, people found ways of getting around it. Um, I won't go into detail of what they mean, but this, there were ways to gain citizenship, there was something called uh, papers for immigration, um, but suffice to say, that slowly a community emerged. This is a photograph taken at Christmas time in 1922 at the East Boston Immigration Station. That station is long gone, but it was sucked into Ellis Island as a, uh, it, by a long shot. that is, the, the uh, East Boston one was much, much smaller in volume. But there was always that this was a shot uh, article by the Globe. On Christmas Day, showing that there were 129 Chinese, Portuguese, Italians, and Armenians held in there until they could be released. And I still feel for the boys in the front row. They must be 8 or 10 years old. Um, I myself came to that station in 1938, and I, I really empathize with them. Now slowly the merchants had children. They could bring their family. They couldn't get naturalized, but they could have. And the children, if you're born in the United States, had citizenship. And it was small enough that it made uh, an article in the Globe. The other way, given that the women, if you were a citizen and women couldn't come, they would have to go back, the men would have to go back to China, get married, have a kid, come back to the U.S. and later bring um, uh, mostly the children, but mostly boys, over. And that happened in my family as well. So on the right is my grandmother and uh, my father in China before he emigrated to the U.S. The... um, Community began to build institutions. Many of them. One of them was the Boy Scouts, and and this was the William Ding Moy. The idea of free public education was very important for the Chinese and and all immigrants, and w- William Moy was a real exception, but. He wound up as president of the English high school class in 1916, and he graduated from MIT in 1920 in mechanical engineering. The Quang Kao Chinese School and the Chinatown Boy Scout troops founded in 1916. These organizations became the modern supplements to family associations in providing services to the community and many of these people went on to become uh, leaders in the community. This is the Quincy School class of 1940. And you can see the mix at that time was uh, Syrians, Chinese, African-Americans, Irish. Other institutions came in. Denison House, uh, was a settlement house that settled in, in Chinatown. And they f- began the important process of bringing the girls up in a modern way. So beyond traditional roles. So the, the girls' basketball team in Denison House was very important, among others as well. And the, um, the picture on the right bottom Amelia Earhart was uh, a volunteer at Denison House. She was much acclaimed and very popular. She drove a yellow roadster, uh, which she would bring down to Denison House, and she called it the yellow perro. I have no idea whether she was being ironic or not. (laughs) (laughs) And this photograph shows Syrian kids and Chinese kids Draped all over her roadster. This story, my part of the story, ends here because World War II comes along and changes everything. And the, now I've turned this over to Shauna.
2: Well, Tunney covered a lot of ground. Um, I'm going to be focusing on a smaller period of time, um, the period after the repeal of the Exclusion Act in 1943 up to the passing of the 1965 Immigration Act. And I'm going to be looking at how... um, immigration legislation affected the the Chinese community in the United States and the greater Boston area. So during this period of time, between 1943 and 1965, there was an annual quota of about 100 Chinese immigrants. Yet thousands of Chinese did become permanent U.S. residents during this period, and changed the landscape of the Chinese population in the greater Boston area in both size and diversity. So how was it possible that so many Chinese immigrated despite this tiny quota? Well, it happened through special legislation, one-time or short-term, short-term laws, special provisions, parole programs, and petitions and these were largely influenced by politics and foreign policy. Now, as Tony was saying, World War II had major consequences for the existing Chinese-American communities. Um, at that time, the community consisted mostly of um, Chinese from southern China, Guangdong Province, Um, were Cantonese and Toysanese speaking. And um, World War II allowed new employment opportunities for Chinese because of an executive order that prohibited racial discrimination in the defense industry and, and in government jobs. Also, a huge number of Chinese served in the military, which enabled them to become citizens, if they weren't already. And the U.S. became an ally of nationalist China, which helped to bring about the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Acts. Now, the Exclusion Act repeal was actually mostly symbolic. Um, It set a quota of 105 Chinese based on ancestry. Um, It did allow the Chinese to be naturalized, which was previously denied to them. However, Chinese men were able to bring wives over outside of this tiny quota through two pieces of legislation that were passed after the war. The first was the War Brides Act, which of course wasn't uh, only for Chinese, but Chinese were able to um, make good use of it. So Chinese veterans, Chinese American veterans, could bring over wives from China without a visa So they went to China, they brought new brides, and also wives that they had been married to for many years in some cases. And the second piece of legislation was the Chinese Alien Wives of American Citizens Act, which allowed Chinese men who may not have been a vet to bring wives from China outside the quota. So this had a major impact on the Chinese American community in Boston, which was very male dominated, as were other Chinese American communities uh, around the country. So it allowed the development of more families and the expansion of Chinatown south of Nealand Street and into the South End. And I wanna just um, share quickly a couple of examples of war brides uh, that have a connection to the Boston area. I'm just going to skip these for now. Okay, um, these are uh, one of my colleague's parents, um, Ngan Sim Liu and Ching Wun Liu. And um, so Mr. Liu, um, after serving in the war, in the military, uh, went to China to get married. And uh, Ching Woon, uh, his future wife, um, actually was educated. She had gone to junior college and had started teaching, and she spoke some English as well. Um, And Mr. Liu chose her because he thought that her being educated would help her adjust more easily to life in the U.S. So they initially lived on Tyler Street in Boston's Chinatown, and Mrs. Liu uh, did not know anyone in the U.S. I mean, I can't imagine what that must have been like for her to to come here she, with a man she hardly knew um, to a strange country. Um, there were very few women in Chinatown then, and she said that the men stared at her and talked about her when she was walking down the street. So she uh, actually befriended, because there were... St- No Chinese woman her own age, she befriended some older Chinese-American women who um, helped her get adjusted, and she had said that she thought she became more traditional culturally because of that. So she spent many years working in the garment industry. Um, Eventually the family moved um, out of Chinatown to Brookline, and she often told her children that she had sacrificed a lot in coming to the U.S., It's just another photo. Okay, these are the parents of Nancy Ng, the former director of the Chinese Historical Society of New England. And this photo was taken in 1947. Uh, Mrs. Ng, who goes by the name Jean, was 18. um, And they first came to New York, Chinatown. So Mr. Ng was... Uh, in the laundry business here, um, and went to China to marry after serving in the military. And the story goes that Mr. Ng chose his wife based upon her height because she would be tall enough to iron in a laundry. (laughs) So Mrs. Ng thought she was marrying a rich man from America and would be working in a clothing store. She did not know that she would be working in a laundry until she got here. Uh, So the ANGs bought a laundry in Poughkeepsie, New York, where there was only one other Chinese woman um, who actually helped uh, Mrs. Ng get adjusted to life in the US. And Mrs. Ng now lives in Boston near Summer for Children. So there was very little other family-based immigration for the Chinese-American community that was already here. Um, the, the U.S. government embarked on a multi-pronged strategy involving the State Department, the INS, and the FBI to shut down what was an illegal immigration chain that was continuing from the exclusion period. So because Chinese were most Chinese were barred from coming here, they develop some quasi-legal or illegal strategies to immigrate into this country and to bring children. Um, so because of this quota, which was 105, Chinese continued trying to enter the U.S. as derivative citizens, in other words, uh, using the paper sun system, which I hoped Tony was gonna to explain, but he... <laughs> He didn't. So basically, if if a Chinese could establish himself as a citizen, as a U.S. citizen, he was able to bring his, usually sons or his children, as what is called derivative citizens. So as a response, the government adopted new tougher policies, such as a pre-screening for prospective Chinese immigrants at the point of departure, and then an interrogation after they came uh, at the point of entry. They also started requiring blood tests to try to prove a family relationship. And also they used provisions in the 1952 Immigration Act to keep out and deport suspected communists. And it was quite an ugly period for the Chinese-American communities. Now, at the same time, The U.S. was encouraging a different type of Chinese immigration after 1949, which was the date of the communist victory in China. So these new Chinese immigrants were highly skilled. They were from all over China, not just Guangdong province, from Taiwan, Hong Kong. They were primarily Mandarin-speaking or spoke uh, some other northern dialect, uh, northern Chinese dialect and they were highly educated from the elite class. They generally did not settle in Chinatown, they settled in suburbs west of Boston, and they generally did not mix much with the southern Chinese Americans who were more working class and spoke different dialects. So this stream of Chinese immigrants was linked to the new Cold War politics in which the United States wanted to demonstrate a moral and ideological superiority in relation to communist nations. There was competition with the Soviet Union for military and technological superiority, which spurred a new need for highly skilled labor. So Chinese were able to come through ad hoc, piecemeal legislation that gave preference to highly skilled workers. And um, this... WAVE included um, people like the architect Ayan Pei, and these people are all, have connections to the the Boston area. Um, An Wang, the computer pioneer. um, The the two, Ayan Pei and An Wang, were here uh, in the country as non-immigrants and were allowed to, um, or encouraged to adjust their status So during World War II and during the Chinese Civil War, there were thousands of Chinese students, faculty, and researchers here for training. When the nationalists lost, many did not want to return to China. And the US passed several acts to help these so-called stranded scholars become permanent residents. There was also a series of refugee acts which admitted thousands of Chinese and allowed them to stay here and adjust their status to permanent residency. Now these these refugee acts were not were only partly humanitarian. They served a political purpose, which was to demonstrate that the United States was a fair and racially tolerant country. Now the, the refugees had to demonstrate that they were anti-communist. They often had to have a sponsor in place, pay their own way, and have employment prearranged. There was also a preference given to um, English speakers. So in return, the United States got workers that were highly skilled in science, technology, and engineering. Now the 1952 Immigration Act, called the McCarran-Walter Act, also facilitated the entry of highly skilled immigrants. It set aside 50% of each country's quota for immigrants with urgently needed skills. Of course, that wasn't very helpful for Chinese since their quota was only 105. Um, but for the, more importantly for the Chinese, it, uh, this Immigration Act allowed non-immigrants to petition the Attorney General for permanent residency if their services were needed. So this led to thousands of private bills which Congress needed to approve individually. Now finally in the 1950s and 1960s, thousands of college graduates from Taiwan came for graduate study in science and engineering and most did not return. So there were various one-time laws, amnesty provisions and so on, to help them gain permanent residency. And this is how thousands of highly skilled Chinese were able to immigrate to the United States outside of the quota, and how the population of Chinese in greater Boston increased somewhat and became more heterogeneous. So these, the discriminatory quotas, and they... um, They um, had favored immigrants from northern and western Europe before. The discriminatory discriminatory quotas were removed in the 1965 Immigration Act, which established a uniform quota of 20,000 for each country. And let me just go back to this, um, this chart. Actually, you can see that the Chinese population in Massachusetts did not really grow significantly until um, until a- after 1980, actually, and this was because of a couple of reasons. Um, so, diplomatic relations with mainland China were suspended until 1979, and also um, the, at that time, the ceiling, uh, the annual ceiling for Immigrants overall was quite low, and it was increased um, quite a bit by the 1980s, which allowed more um, Chinese immigrants. And um, so that brings us up to 1965, and and, uh, Lee Sung will continue from here.
3: Bear with me with my strange voice. (laughs) Caught a cold a few days ago, so please stay warm, stay healthy. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a great honor to be able to participate. Thank you. To be able to participate in this panel and talk about Chinese migration, Isn't this okay now? Closer? Okay, thank you. Okay. Thank you. Um. I <clears throat> yeah, will move on to this one. <clears throat> uh, so I will try to cover three major points because the theme of our discussion is about the historical experience of Chinese in the United States and particularly in Massachusetts Boston, and also the impacts of the Chinese Exclusion Act. So I would like to cover three points. One, the changing patterns of Chinese migration in the last decades, which kind of overlaps a little bit with what Shona just mentioned, uh, which led to the increasing diversity and the complexity of the Chinese community here. And secondly, how does recent migration resonate within the Chinese experience during the exclusion era? And the third point is the post-1965 Chinese-American community, their no organizations in light of the Exclusion Act Um, as Shauna just mentioned, the Chinese Exclusion Act was repealed in 1943, largely because China was an ally over the U.S. and it would be against the U.S. national interests if it continued this racist law. Also, post-Second World War movements worldwide against the colonialism, racism, and the Cold War ideological battle also led to the reform of the immigration policies in white settler societies. So we see the U.S. repealed the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1943 and then the 1965 immigration reform. Canada also abolished the Chinese exclusion, kind of same in the chinese exclusion law in 1947 and also late in the 1960s abolished the old immigration policy and opened it to all national groups and the points system was also installed in Canada at that time. And Australia also uh, abolished the dictation test, which was installed in 1901, so it, Australia abolished the NATO law in 1958, and then 1966 it more officially addressed the risk problem in its immigration policies. So we see this uh, trend of abolishing racist immigration laws which opened a new year for immigration worldwide. At the same time, in the newly independent Southeast Asian nations after the Second World War, the large ethnic Chinese population became very vulnerable. In the past, they served as middlemen between white colonialists and the locals, and they played very important roles in local economy and politics and society. Um, but they had a status lower than the colonialists, but higher than the locals. So now, um, in the post-colonial era, um, even though they have been there for generations, now they were scapegoated for the economic and the social problems in Southeast Asian nations caused by colonialism. And then they were often persecuted, too, in the name of anti-communism. So, Uh, Historically, the majority of Chinese went to Southeast Asia. That kind of, in fact, challenged the American myth and the myth of American dream. Everyone wants to come here. In fact, most of the Chinese went to Southeast Asia. Uh, More than 95% of the Chinese migrants uh, in the past were in Southeast Asia. But then, up to the 1990s, only about 80% uh, Chinese, uh, ethnic Chinese population were in Southeast Asia. So that's the changing desolations after the Second World War, and then uh, different waves, different backgrounds. So inside of China, when you talk about the Sunday Nations, the changing political and economic conditions also shaped the patterns of Chinese migration. The Chinese Communist Revolution 1949, of course, and all the continuous political movements led to basically in the stop of the end of Chinese immigration from the mainland until the late 1970s. So most of the Chinese coming to the U.S. after the Second World War in the 50s, 60s, early 1970s were from Taiwan, Hong Kong, Southeast Asia, the people who re-migrated from Southeast Asia to North America and other parts of the world. So these different waves of Chinese migrants led to contribute to the increasing diversity of Chinese population in the United States, linguistically, and the, the national nationality and the cultural identity and the political orientation, socio-economic status, very, very different. And in fact, that's why if you, you see the Chinatown Gate, you see both flags, the PRC flag and the ROC flags, both hung there. And As Shauna mentioned earlier, the increasing preference for skilled migrants in post-1965, in fact, post the Second World War, immigration, U.S. immigration policies. Um, The 1952 Immigration Act, Shauna mentioned, already gave preference to highly skilled migrants. In fact, the Displaced Person Act of 1948 was another milestone in U.S. immigration policies, which required that 30% of the refugees comprise agricultural workers, and the second preference also be given to professional or highly skilled migrants. And then the 1965 Hard Sell Act um, prioritized the family-based and employment-based migration, and it allocated 20% of the annual quota to employment-based immigration. And 1990, the Immigration Act substantially increased the overall immigration, raised the quota for employment-based visas, and it also created a new visas, visa, H-1B, which has caused a lot of controversy recently, in recent years. Uh, H-1B visa is for workers in specialty occupations who held at least a bachelor's degree. And then you can see in the 1998, 2000, even by just looking at the titles, you can see, the economic nationalism in American immigration policies have been uh, emphasized and strengthened in these past decades. And these two laws, 1998 to 2000, dramatically increased the H-1B visa quota. And I would like to show you this poem, which I used in my book, uh, showing the experience of the skilled migrants so this is from, in fact, the MIT BBS, a very popular online community forum for Chinese immigrants. 2008, uh, the title, finally I'm out of jail. I'm back to enter California jail in 2001, and my case is EB2, which means employment-based number two, and the second category of employment-based um, immigration. Economy was bad. More inmates stuck in jail. I waited and waited. And they devised a backlog inmate center back to clear inmates in long queue. I was transferred to back jail center in 2005. It was hopeless at the back. So I requested so-called inmate labor certificate substitution, which I was told I can come out sooner. I was happily transferred to a Nebraska jail center in September 2005. Unluckily, FBI cannot clear my security background checking, worst, they made a conclusion my priority date should be September 2005, when he he or she transferred uh, to the the, the labor certificate substitute. And I waited and waited, finally they left me go on August 19th, 2008, which means it took her or him eight years to get a green card, from start p- applying for a green card as uh, a, a form employed worker. And the EB2, in fact, is a quite uh, common category for people with advanced degrees. Myself, in fact, applied through this EB2, which means the... Uh, uh, applicants with advanced degree and exceptional capability. So university professors and uh, workers in high tech companies. And so you can see from this case, the conventional wisdom is that professional migrants, because of their socioeconomic status, because of their educational background, they might be preferred, they were preferred in the immigration system. And they might be treated differently when they might have an easier transition period to become American immigrant or citizen. In fact, not. And the, the language here is particularly interesting. I wonder whether you see the metaphor in the jail uh, and also the security check, um, which really resonates with the Chinese experience in during the exclusion year, even though there's a dr- very remarkable economic class difference here, right? These are still pretty uh, well of immigrants. And I would like to use a lot of example to show you the uh, in fact, similarity between recent migrants and the past generations of Chinese in the U.S. We all know that a lo- the number of Chinese immigrants in the United States has in- increased dramatically and is the number one uh, top group of international students in the U.S. And in fact, about 300,000 Chinese students in the U.S. in this past academic year, about one-third of all international students in the U.S. But we can also see here a report from the New York Times along with, uh, it was also published in the Chronicle for High Education. It says, the China conundrum: American colleges find the Chinese student boom a tricky feat. Class was very quiet, the class where the Chinese students were uh, enrolled in was, could be very quiet. It was pretty deadly. American concepts of intellectual property don't translate readily to students from a country where individualism is anathema. If you have been raised on that for the first 18 years of your life, when it comes down to who you, they trust, they trust each other, they don't particularly trust us. So these are the original quotes uh, published in New York Times about Chinese students in the U.S. And it reminds me of the words, phrases used in the past, and also the stereotypes about the Chinese immigrants in the past, and they are untrustworthy, right? And then they are ethnocentric, they tended to stick to each other, they don't trust us. And also they, are, they were passive, they didn't participate in class which is totally untrue, based on my experience. I, I, I have so many Chinese international students in my class, past classes. So, um, migrants in Massachusetts and the Chinese in Boston. 2015, foreign-born in Massachusetts, the population of foreign-born, about one million, and it's about a 16% of the state population and about half of them entered the U.S. since 2000. So they're still fresh immigrant experience. And the foreign-born from Asia, about 332,000, so about one-third of all the foreign-born in Massachusetts. Free-born foreign-born from China, about 100,000, 110,000 in fact, and that's about a 10% of all the foreign-born in Massachusetts. Asian Americans in Massachusetts, the fastest growing group, 46.9% increase during 2000 to 2010, and it's about 5.3% of the state population. And the Chinese, still the largest group in Massachusetts among the Asian Americans, 33.8% in 2010. And these statistics come from the Institute for Asian American Studies, where Shona uh, is um, at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. And uh, if Tony already showed in this slide, so the observation here is in fact, Boston hosts about 22% of the Chinese population in Massachusetts. So the majority of the Chinese population, in fact, they were dispersed, they reside in different cities and increasingly in suburban cities. And migrant communities in Massachusetts, I think in light of the Exclusion Act, I think Boston Chinese community has very, very deep roots, very, very um, deep tradition of civic engagement. And um, so we can see here a long list of organizations, including umbrella organizations such as CCBA in the Chinese, Consolidated Beloved Association, and the Chinese Coalition, and the Traditional Family Associations and Community Organizations, and the Kao Chinese School, founded in 1916, and the Chinese Historical Society of New England, 1992, and some of service and the civic organizations. So you can see the years when these organizations were established, and then they belong to different types too. The Asian American Civic Association 1967. In fact, it it originated in Chinatown, but it now served immigrants from 80 countries. And Boston Chinatown Neighborhood Center, 1969, South Cove Community Health Center, Great Boston Chinese Golden Age Center, serving a particular group of immigrants, and the Chinese Progressive Association, Civic Rights and Asian American Resource Workshop. In fact, now there is this uh, Asian American Festival going on October 19th to the 22nd, and it was sponsored and uh, established by this group. Families with Children from China New England, which is another type of immigrant organization serving a particular group of uh, the Chinese community here with increasing numbers of Chinese adoptees in the U.S. So this group, helps those families to um, meet the needs of the children and also of the parents. And more and more organizations started in the great Boston area. For example, just in this great Boston area, we have more than 10 Chinese language schools and you can see the Again, I'm a historian, so I pay attention to the time. Newton, 1959, Nexington 1972, Melden, 1998, Westwood, 2009, Wellesley, 2010, and some community and or cultural associations. Great Boston Chinese Cultural Association, 1956, Cambridge Center for Chinese Culture, 1990, Chinese American Association of New Newton, where I'm now living in 2016. So. Um, that's a poster of the Newton Chinese Cultural Festival 2017, right this year. And in fact, we have a a Chinese immigrant now um, trying to uh, uh, become the school uh, commissioner in Newton and the Chinese committee in Newton now is very excited and we all try to uh, participate in this election. So that's my introduction of the Chinese after 1965. Thank you.